I'm fortunate I can look back on my life and see how it mattered that I was here to mother my daughter with her addiction, to be there for my sister, for my niece um, when they were going through struggles. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Huge thanks to everybody who has joined me here on this podcast, who listens week in and week out, or perhaps this is your first time. And a special thanks to our recent Patreon supporters, Blue Neuron, Jack Allison, and Tegan Churchill. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly, Tegan. And I want to share a message from Tegan, who lives in Olympia, Washington. I listen because I have major depression and have lots of suicidal ideation. Ever since I was little, I always thought of suicide as my backup plan. It helped me get through things thinking that I was never truly trapped in a way. I think listening to other stories is rewarding to me. When I'm feeling bad, it's nice to hear. It's a relatively common feeling and it helps to hear people talk about suicide from people that don't judge others for considering it an option. I support the podcast because I can and I think what you do is important and want it to continue. Hearing others with similar experiences and ideas helps fight feelings of isolation. Thanks so much, Tegan, for that message and your support. Thanks to everybody who supports this podcast. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. And we are talking about suicide on this podcast, so it may not be a good fit for everybody. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Vicki. Vicki lives in North Carolina, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Vicki. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. How do we, how do we connect? So I was um, looking at podcasts. I've been thinking about doing a podcast myself about mental wellness, spiritual wellness. The first topic I was going to talk about was you know, my experience with suicidal ideation, I was looking for how to do that. It's not an easy topic to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I came across your podcast. Very glad you did. Most people do not search for suicide, but you were saying that you search for it. You are an ideator and or attempter. So I've attempted one time and I've seriously contemplated it a total of three times. The last time being 14, 15 years ago. So the first in the series of things was the attempt when I was 16 years old. All right. You want to share about that? Sure. So the couple of years leading up to the attempt, um, my mother suffered from severe anxiety, panic attacks, mm. and took a lot of Xanax. Mm. And a couple of years up to the attempt, probably when I was 10 or 11, she was diagnosed with agoraphobia where she couldn't even leave the house. Mm. 
So she was like housebound for like two years. Other people had to come and do the grocery shopping and laundry and whatnot. And my father was in the house, but he was pretty detached from all of it. Probably when I was 13, eighth grade, I did try to take some of her Xanax, not to kill myself, but just to check it out. And, you know, I was probably looking for a way to escape. So you're eight, you're, you're in eighth grade, you're a young lady in Buffalo, New York, you try the Xanax, you're like, nah, what happens after that? Don't like it. So then we moved to Jacksonville, Florida, when I was in ninth grade, let's say. So my father got a job down there, we moved to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, My mother was over the agoraphobia, but she took a downward spiral because she was lonely. She was drinking a lot. I probably, I started hanging out with rebellious teens and I was always very uh, scholastical, like always did really good work, wanted good grades. And then it started slipping in ninth grade. Then in 10th grade, which was high school, we moved back to where we lived originally. We rented out our house when we were gone. So I started hanging out with my old friends that I had the year before. This is Buffalo or Jacksonville? Yes. So this is back in Buffalo. We moved back to Buffalo a year later into the old house that we lived in before. We had just rented it out. So I had my previous friends. There was the suicide attempt was based off of bullying. There was a new girl in the neighborhood Also went to my school, just decided she didn't like me, was going to pick on me, humiliate me. So it went on in school. It went on in the neighborhood, on the bus ride home, and it was relentless. I asked my mother, um, I was 16 at the time. So I asked my mother, please just let me quit school. And she wouldn't sign the papers. You know, the final day, the day that I did, you know, overdose, um, tried to kill myself. It was on the bus ride home. And this girl was being really brutal, getting the whole bus to chant things. And it was just completely humiliating. So when I went home that day, that night, I took my mother's, it was, it was probably impulsive. I took my mother's Xanax and I took blood pressure pills, whatever I could find in the medicine cabinet. Mm And then I went to bed hoping I just wouldn't wake up. So then in the morning I woke up and I was and felt really bad. And I was like, oh shit, I'm in trouble. Now I have to go tell my mother what I did. Mm. You just woke up. Yeah. Nothing. With my, with my heart beating out of my chest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You want to die or not be alive or something around that in that space of just checking out. And then you wake up. And you're just back and you're Vicky and you're 15 or 16 years old in Buffalo. What is that like? I don't know that I was upset that I wasn't dead. I was just thinking about how much trouble I was going to be in for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get in trouble? Oh, yeah. What I remember is I don't remember telling her, Mm. but I remember the neighbor and her driving me to the hospital because, of course, my mother with her anxiety couldn't have done it herself. Mm. But I was sitting in the back seat, and I just remember her yelling at me the whole way there. 
not at all a comment on your mom, but a comment in general. When people are in pain and they do things like they try to take their own lives or something, this is just my thoughts. Occasionally, I'll insert them. I try to limit this. Please don't punish people for doing things when they're in, like, that's not the best response, I don't think. Like yelling and punishing. I don't think that's usually the best way to do it. Now, I'm not a parent. So people out there might be like, Sean, trust me, when you have, if you had kids, you would see differently. Maybe so. Maybe so. Do you agree? Like maybe that wasn't the best way to handle it. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm 53 now, so I can look back on it and I've, you know, been through therapy. So there's a whole lot of things about my mother that I saw differently when I'm a 16 year old child. So when you're a 16 year old child, you think you've done something wrong. Right. And she's really probably freaking out. It's a scary thing. Are you able to um, reframe? And this isn't a loaded question. I'm not suggesting you should. You said you're 53. You've, you've been through some stuff. You've been through therapy. Can you see differently the bullying? Oh, yeah. I My whole perception of life has changed. Mm. I, I don't think I would have recovery without it. I do see that bullying very differently. Um, I have empathy for that girl and just see bullying is very, you know, different. And all the things that happen to me, I see with a different perspective. I have a great deal of empathy for my mother. My parents caused a lot of damage, but mm. not intentional. Damaged people, damaged people. Yeah. Hurt people, hurt people. I've talked to about 100 people for this podcast now. I have many times heard I was bullied. I have, I don't recall ever hearing I bullied. Hmm. And I'm sure there were people who did it and either don't recognize it or won't admit it. Or, you know, the people who end up hearing the podcast, reaching out and joining me are sort of, to some degree, a rather self-selected group of people, right? You've ideated or tried, you have a Wi-Fi access. I don't recall anyone ever saying I was a bully. And it just makes me think, just makes me think, I don't know what the conclusion is there, but anyway. I don't know that everybody would reflect on their life and even think of, what they had done at that time was bullying or ever even think about it again or have any idea of the impact. But there's hurt people who hurt other people. And then there's hurt people who hurt themselves, which I, you know, think of the suicidals, anger turned inward or anger turned outward. So when you were so 16, do you, did you think about suicide before six? You said it was eighth grade when you started contemplating a little bit, or was that different? The Xanax thing in eighth grade was just probably trying to escape, but not a suicide attempt. Honestly, don't remember ever thinking about it before then. Mm-hmm. And then, so 16, you have that attempt. What, what so happened? She took, yeah. she took me to the hospital and they observed me for a while And what I remember my mother told me is um, they wanted to keep me, but she talked them into discharging me. Same day. Yeah. Mm. And I was going to do outpatient. All right. But I did. I went to an outpatient. Mm -hmm. How do you remember? Was that at all helpful? No, no. I've heard that before too, unfortunately. So I was actually hopeful. I was actually Mm. in a good mood when I went because I'm like, I'm going to get help. Honestly, the only thing I remember this guy saying to me was, 
you know, I was talking to him about being depressed and that's what everybody kept calling it. And he said to me, well, you don't look depressed to me. You've showered today. Your hair is combed. I don't know what he was told before I showed up for that visit or if he thought, you know, this was me just trying to get attention or I, I mean, I don't know what the hospital told him or my mother. I don't remember who set up the appointment. It wasn't me. I walked out. (laughs) Oh no. 16 year old girl walks out. Clearly that's a, yeah, that's an interesting choice as far as sure. There's some reason or logic behind that question, but it escapes me. So as you get older, you had mentioned that you had three serious times in your life where you were thinking about it. So what was the first one after that attempt as a teenager? So there was that attempt. And then after that attempt, my mother did let me quit school. And I went on, I got my GED about a year later. I got pregnant when I was 18, had my daughter. The next time I was serious about it, I was 31 And I had been in a relationship with someone for five years and he died from a heroin overdose. Mm. By this time, I had moved away from Buffalo. That time I was like methodically planning it out. I was just going to do it. I had suffered with depression like from the time I was 13 to 38. Mm. And a lot of times it was just the feeling of not wanting to be there, but not suicidal. Life was hard for me. So when I was contemplating suicide, it was like, you know, I might get over this, but then something else is going to happen. You know, I'm just done. I'm tired. I'm done. I was planning it out, figuring it out. My daughter was 11 or 12 at the time. And I'm like, my sister is a good mother. She can take care of her. I was seriously thinking about it and very curious about what happens to you after you die. Cause I'm like, is there a hell? Is that Mm. where I'm going to go? What if I end up in a worse place than I am now? So I started really looking into near death experiences, stuff like that. And the lady who was renting me the apartment at the time was a Christian. And I started asking her questions and she gave me a Bible And I read the New Testament, couldn't get into the Old Testament, just wasn't speaking to me. So I was really into these uh, Jesus teachings. So did a lot of research about him. Who was he? Did he really exist? Uh, Long story short, I really wasn't sure what it was about, but I believed that there was something after life. Mm. So I decided that suicide was not a good option. Mm. And, and you became a Christian? Well, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. My family was not religious. I went to church through school on Fridays. We didn't go on Sundays. I guess I've always considered myself a Christian. I just never really paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. I did start searching after that with different churches and really never found one that spoke to me. So then fast forward to when I was 38, I was in a relationship with a married man. When his wife found out, it was very traumatic for all three of us. I became suicidal again. When you were 31, you were thinking about it, and then you found that Bible and you decided not to do it. When you say thinking about it, just because I think there are people out there that, you know, one of the main goals of the podcast is someone hears this and says, oh, I'm not the only one, you know, 
there are other people in the world that have gone through this or that are going through this. When you say thinking about it, you're talking about days, weeks, months. So when I was 31, I would say it was weeks. It it was methodical mm. to me in my mind. It was very logical. And if okay. I was going to do it, I was going to make sure I was going to succeed. So you were thinking it. about methods that would be likely to work. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where my daughter was going to go, how I was going to do it, where I was going to go. Not impulsive. And this is and this is following the loss of your then boyfriend. But you don't die. You don't try. Several years relationship, married man, similar sort of experience. What is like the energy of it, of thinking about it, planning it? This was much more, believe it or not, dramatic. I was devastated in a way I hadn't been before. Yeah, I was crushed. Like just, I I couldn't even drag myself out of bed. That went on for a couple months. I would struggle to get through the day and couldn't wait to get home so I could just cry. And crying is not something that I really ever did. So I started to feel like the, the suicidal thoughts, like as soon as they hit, I said, oh no, we aren't, we aren't doing this. I got to get help. Mm-hmm. And I called my sister and let her know so I could be accountable to make sure I went and got help. I did. I, I found a therapist the next day out of the phone book, went to see her and she saved my life. Wow. Out of the phone book. So I assume she did not lead with, you don't seem or look depressed. Oh God, no. So more than 20 years later, this therapist did things well. Yeah. I mean, I had seen a couple therapists in my twenties. They were nice. They were sympathetic. We had good conversation. I can't say we really fixed anything. Right. What was different about this woman? We got down to business. Like we were there to work. Um, Mm. She had a plan. I was resistant of going back into my childhood. I'm like, I don't want to be in therapy for 20 years. Can you just fix what's happening now? She was pretty authoritative with me, um, which I needed. You know, Mm. this is what we got to do. We got to, you know, it's not going to be forever, blah, 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 blah. This is what we got to do. She really pointed out to me, you know, she called what my mother had a mental illness. And that took me by surprise. I never considered my mother having a mental illness. And she talked about just my father being emotionally unavailable. You're in the house with a mentally ill parent. Mm. She called my mother a narcissist, which Mm. was hard for me to take. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, how do you wrap your head around that? You know, like I wasn't her favorite child. I was her narcissistic supply. <laughs> she told me a lot of stuff. I had a lot of trouble integrating or accepting things that my mother had done. My mother would present it in a way that she did everything she did for us. So this therapist was presenting it in a much different light. So it was just very hard for me to um, really comprehend that. Long story short, you know, she told me I needed to forgive my mother. And when I was trying to do that, a lot of stuff about myself that I thought was just as selfish that I had to forgive myself for came up. You know, the one night it was just like, I call it a spiritual healing, but 
it was like a life review, but with a completely different perspective of everything I had been through. Another thing that she did that was different is she gave me the diagnosis of dysthymia. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Like a mild depression. Right. So everybody had always been calling it depression, but I didn't feel like I had a reason to be depressed. I didn't feel depressed. I did have the low mood, but dysthymia is really the inability to feel joy. It's emotionally being shut down. She told me that, you know, how to fix that is you have to pay attention to how you feel, really experience what you're feeling, because I had shut that off a long time ago. So between that, having the different perspective on life, it was like the difference between climbing up a mountain and struggling to get up on top and being propelled up the mountain. So there was like an instantaneous healing and then a long healing. And I would say I'm still, you can always spiritually grow. So I started listening to uh, the spiritual teacher who wrote a book, The Power of Now, and it really focuses on being in the present moment. Mm. which for 25 years of my life, I was trying to avoid. Is that Eckhart Tolle? Power of yeah. Man? Wow. I'm glad that helped or it has been helping. I focus very much so on how I'm feeling where for many years, I just stuffed it down. Mm -hmm. And whenever, you know, I believe that, you know, anxiety and depression all come from feeling not good enough in isolation. And if you suffer from anxiety, which I had to after the bullying, social anxiety, you feel you're not good enough, you isolate yourself. Mm -hmm. I spent, you know, and still do, I make sure that I stay present. And when those bad, yucky feelings come around that I don't like, which I can tell you that I've never thought of suicide since then. I don't ever have the feeling that I don't want to be here. I sometimes have that feeling I'm not good enough, but I can easily get rid of it. I pull it out and deal with it. I don't ignore it. So 38, so my math is correct, about 15 years ago, that's when all that went down. You found the therapist, you got to work. Obviously, Washington, obviously, it sounds like you got over the loss, another loss, right? You had the loss of the boyfriend, loss of, the, of that partner or that person. All the while you have a daughter. Oh, yes. All the while you have a daughter. So you're also a mom and you're working. What kind of work were you doing? I'm curious. I'm a nurse. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're in it. I'm you're in it. it. You're in it. Dysthymia. Did you ever get diagnosed with, um, or excuse me, a prescribed medication? I had been on, um, they put me on Prozac back in my 20s okay. when I went to counseling. And I took it for about a year told them it wasn't working. They tried Wellbutrin. I was allergic to that. Mm -hmm. Tried Lexapro. It gave me brain fog. Mm -hmm. So um, my rock star therapist I got when I was 38 wanted me back on Prozac. I agreed to it um, just because this is another thing. When I was 38 and I had the suicidal thoughts, I knew I needed outside help. I said to myself, I can't trust my own thinking. This is not what I want to do. So I, I made a commitment to myself, no matter what stupid thing she told me to do, I was going to do it. And even though I'm really anti-medication for a lot of things, not everything, it definitely you need it to stabilize. But 
we overprescribe instead of dealing with shit. And my mother with her Xanax never got better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, just called it a chemical imbalance. But I, I did go on the Prozac and I'm still on it. The psychiatrist told me with my history, I have a 75% chance of becoming suicidal again, and that I should stay on it the rest of my life. Seems to be working. Yeah. Or not. Or not. Something's working, right? You're here. Yep. Do you have, as a nurse and a mom and someone in the world near Charlotte, North Carolina, do you have people in your life you can talk to about difficult things? Not about daisies, not about butterflies, but about pain. Well, you, I always have God, mm-hmm. have the higher power, the universe, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. My sister's here in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. We're very close. One of my sisters is here. I'll be honest with you. I haven't talked about this in a very long time. It just doesn't come up. Well, people, I probably do know people who've thought about it, but people don't talk about it. And if I wasn't thinking about, you know, doing a podcast and addressing some, you know, mental health things, I wouldn't have either. Um, It's something that I don't think about. And it doesn't come up. And I get, and I get why. I mean, I get why it's not sort of everyday conversation. Sure. Why, why were you thinking about, or are you thinking about starting a podcast? My daughter is a recovering drug addict. Mm -hmm. And I started doing a lot of work with moms of kids who were on drugs when I came to Charlotte. And I talk very openly about it. I've spoken about it at work, of course, with the opiate crisis at work. Mm -hmm. They were very interested in hearing, you know, wanted me on committees and stuff. And I wrote an article And a lot of people, I mean, refer moms to me to talk to. So I was thinking about doing a podcast about that, but I'm like, you know, I got a whole smorgasbord of mental health, spiritual wellness to talk about. So that's kind of how it came about. And I don't like writing. Right, right. That's one of the reasons why I did it too. It's easier to talk. These days, it's so easy for people to access that they can hear it as opposed to read it. There are different things, of course, but yeah, nice. Does it have a name, the podcast, or is it not yet in that? Love's Divine and the Logical Mind. All right, here we go. Let me know <laughs> when that baby's launched. I'll tune in. Okay. Um, do you think you'll try again? Oh, never. No chance. No. Uh, anything that you've not mentioned thus far that helps you feel better or okay or fill in the blank? For my wellness, I take care of me first. Like I said, if I have anything that is slightly bothering me, I drag it out. You know, mm. can't fight the darkness. You can only bring it into the light. And and I challenge it and I address it. I will take a vacation for my problems. If I, you know, with my daughter and her addiction, there were many years that it was life or death. I did what I could. I showed up when I could. Um, But I also took care of me. Things like going for a walk, you know, being out in the sunshine. Um, Mm. I meditate, things like that. So I take care of me first. Mm -hmm. I'll never try again. Um, I've also, I'm fortunate I can look back on my life and see 
how it mattered that I was here to mother my daughter with her addiction, to be there for my sister, for my niece, um, when they were going through struggles and matters that I'm here. And, yeah. and it did matter. And it would have been devastating had I succeeded. Right. Outside of your mom and some people in a hospital, how many people know about the actual attempt when you were 16? Only four. My brother, my sisters, and a cousin. Keep it in the family. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, now people know. I know. There will be people well, that hear this and they'll say, oh, all right, Vicki in North Carolina. Huh? Okay. Thanks for sharing that. I'm so far away from it. Um, I give a lot of credit to the folks that come on your show, being so close to it and talking yeah. about it. I wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah. Some of them are very close to it. And I actually like, huh, is this too soon? I let them decide, right? They're adults. But I have yeah. that thought like, oof, this was last month. Yeah. I, I just feel so far from it. Just so joyful. Not just that I didn't kill myself, but I care about how I experience life. And I do. I I mean, I have hard times, I have ups, I have downs, but I can experience joy in life. Something that for, I would say 25 years, life was just something to endure. So you found joy, even though you've got the dysthymia? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I consider myself cured. I know there are psychiatrists, psychologists who feel that dysthymia can't be cured. I disagree. That's fair. There's people who feel that <laughs> there's psychologists who disagree on everything, right? So who knows who's correct? Yeah. You had said earlier, this is a bit of a tangent, but you were you were considering the afterlife. Did you ever come to any conclusion? Hell, heaven? This is just my opinion. I think we keep ourselves in hell. I do think finding God and connecting with God is about forgiving yourself that you would keep yourself from God because you can't face maybe things you've done. Mm -hmm. I don't think God puts us in hell. I think hell is a state of mind. Can't disagree with that one. (laughs) So when I, you know, I often ask people about myths they want to call bullshit on. So I want to ask you about that. And for you, I want to ask, it could be a little broader. Typically, I mean, people can say anything they want, of course, but it's usually framed around suicide or their attempt or ideating. But I also am curious if you want to add stuff around drug addiction Hmm. and maybe the, was your daughter, was it an opioid, opiate thing? Yeah. Well, she's done everything, but it started off with the pills and heroin. So myths in general that you want people to better understand from what you've gone through or what you, how you feel about any of that. So one myth I think is, you know, when people say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, if you suffer from something like dysthymia, you're living in a joyless state for a long time. It's, Mm. it's not a temporary problem. There's depression and I get depressed now and it's fine. It's not going to send me suicidal. Dysthymia was the real devil underneath it all. I know that I'll feel better again. Another thing about dysthymia is they they estimate that only about 20% of people who suffer from it get treatment because they don't know they have it. Mm-hmm. They think it's part of their personality. Yeah, so, so insidious because it's not so... In- it is a big major 
thing, but it's not, you're not, it's you're not, not acute. It's right. It's just sort of there always. And it's sucked in the life out of little bit hidden enough so that people don't get treatment, but it's always there. I think when you say stuff like when, when I hear what you just said, it, it just reminds me of hopelessness. Like you just know tomorrow's going to be the same and the next week's going to be the same. And so when you say a temporary problem, it's, I don't, I don't know what people are thinking when they say that, but we're not talking just about, I had a breakup, which you could argue is somewhat temporary, I guess. We're talking about, I know next year I'm going to feel this way because the last 14 fucking years, I felt this way. It's temporary in that everything's temporary, but that's semantics. It feels like forever. Right. You're much nicer with people who say stuff like that than I am. I'm like, fuck you. (laughs) You're probably, you're nice. You're like, okay. You know, you're probably, yeah, right, right. You're nice. I'm not nice. I'm nice. You're nice. Any other myths? Yeah. Yeah, So the, the whole opioid thing and drug addiction. There's a lot of mixed opinions out there. I personally don't believe that it's a brain disease. And I know that people, you know, want to break the stigma of it, which I, you know, agree with, but I think there's harm in calling it a brain disease because everybody's looking to a different medication to fix it. My daughter wouldn't call it a brain disease honestly, the cause of addiction is, I would think the same as the cause of suicidal ideation is not feeling good enough and the lack of connection, being able Mm -hmm. to connect. There's a famous study that was done on addiction, the rat park, you know, that if people don't connect with somebody, they're going to connect with something. And I just am very grateful my experience with therapy allowed me to see what I didn't give to my daughter as far as the nurturing, the connection that I didn't think was important. And it's as critical to life as air and water. Yeah. But it's harder to measure. Like If somebody's asphyxiating or dehydrating, you can kind of see it. Maybe. Certainly the, it's so tricky. Somebody who just has no love and no connection but you're right. You'll see it. And it almost always comes out. You'll see it. You'll see it in mm-hmm. anger. You'll see it in booze. You'll see it in drugs. You'll see it in rage. You'll see it in, in any number of ways. It comes out. It's like water. You know, it just, it's going to find the thing, the place it needs to go. We don't know exactly when, but it is not, it's going to come out. But right. So people, what do they do? They harm people, harm themselves, ideate. Sometimes they try. Sometimes they they're dead now. Oh yeah. A lot of people. Yeah. You know, in the introduction of this podcast, millions of people, and that's true. Because we can we, it's really tricky with suicide because they they estimate numbers, but what do you attribute to suicide? Like somebody who's who's doing drugs at hardcore drugs every day, they, is that a suicide or is that a drug overdose? It's tricky to sort of label like we don't know. But yeah. We know that about, they say for sure, about 50,000 in in the United States. At a minimum, 10 times that number try. I don't think there's much debate about that. That's a half a million people every year, just in the US. So we're talking millions worldwide. I mean, that's just... You know, I'll tell you, with my shift in the way I perceive life, I was quite a perfectionist and thinking that all these structures in place for civilization that 
decided whether I was good enough or not and thinking if I just tried harder, I would be good enough. My shift in perception is that this is just a world, you know, we created. We created these finish lines that says we are good enough. And I really, you know, like uh, Einstein says, if you judge a fish by his ability to climb a tree, he'll (laughs) think he's stupid his whole life. That's a very good point. (laughs) He's a smart guy, too. Very smart. I'm not a perfectionist anymore. I, I, I don't try to live up to the world or society standards of what they say success is and what good enough is. I'm solid in my spirituality and who I am and not who, you know, I tried to be what the world said I should be. And I live by my own moral code. So of, of what is right or wrong and makes me good enough, not, you know, the promotions and everything that society says makes you good enough. Mm-hmm. And you're a nurse. Yep. At a hospital? Now I work in ambulatory care. Um, I'm more in administration now. Most of my career is in critical care in the hospitals. Um, I do infection control now. When you were doing critical care, did you see people who had attempted to end their lives? Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm. And in the emergency room when I was a supervisor. That's a whole another conversation about how mental health patients are treated in medical facilities. Mm. And we need the voices from the inside. Me ranting about it is one thing, but you ranting about it, or maybe it wouldn't sound like a rant. Very different. There's so much to talk about that. You're right. It's a different conversation, maybe even a different podcast. But if the police were, here's my, just my little rant here. Here's like, if the police were what they probably were originally designed to do, it might make sense if they're trained, but given how we've militarized the police, Yes. You're calling them to somebody who's essentially in pain. Somebody's doing something that seems a little erratic or they're in pain and or they're screaming. And all you're doing is escalating it. All you're doing is escalating it with the cops. All you're doing is escalating it with the way they're treated in mental health facilities often. And that's the exact opposite. And everyone and almost anybody who's would, would, could, would agree with that. Why would you escalate it? Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you, my brother-in-law is a, a police officer. They just aren't trained to handle it. We do a very, very poor job. And I know I'm preaching in the choir with mental health. There's nowhere for them to go. So they end up in the medical health care system. And honestly, to put someone who's suicidal in a busy, chaotic ER is the most untherapeutic thing you can oh do. God. And they can be there for weeks because there's nowhere to take them. And they're not getting any therapy. Preach away, Vicki. Preach away. I am the choir. A few years ago, I think I was on the wrong drugs. I was on taking Adderall, which which I used to do cocaine, and I love cocaine. My brain loves cocaine. I can and understand that. Loved it. To this day, I would love to do it. I don't. I get prescribed Adderall because, you know, at the time, there might have been this guy. Who knows? This diagnosis. That Anyway, I liked it, and I was able to focus. Well... That perhaps, in addition to some other things, my life, I start getting very, very intense every day. I'm punching the wall. It's getting dangerous. I get pulled over and the cop writes me a ticket, as he should have, and I was on my way to my therapist's office. And he wasn't a particularly good therapist. And they get scared because I think in part, 
it might be related to insurance companies or job, their job. God forbid somebody does something really bad right after they leave my office. So he says, I think you should go to the psych unit. I said something that I didn't realize was actually quite profound, at least as it applies to me. And it, and, and I'm sharing this because what you just said, it reminds me of something or it sounds similar. I said to him, I don't need to go to the psych unit. What I need is a walk in the woods with a friend. Mm-hmm. Now it sounds silly. I think I was actually pretty accurate. Now, was that yeah, the only silly. thing I needed? No, of course a walk in the woods with, with a friend isn't going to miraculously like everything's going to be okay, but I didn't need chaos. I didn't need to be locked up. I didn't need to be ignored. I didn't need to be any of those things. What I really needed was something quiet and calm. Nature sounded good with at least one person who I could talk with who would listen. And I knew it. I knew it. And what happened was he kind of talked me into going to the psych unit. What's really bizarre is when I got there and I told him why I was there, she said, are you suicidal or homicidal? I said, I, I don't really think I'm either. I just, he said, I should come here. And as best I can recall, my memory might not be as accurate as I think it is. She needed me to pick one. Huh. So I said, all right, I know I'm suicidal. <laughs> then I'm a huge risk because I said I'm suicidal. So what do they do? They lock you up. What do they do? They put you in a room. They take all your stuff. They don't tell you why. Now, the nurse could have maybe, but she's also very busy and probably maybe not trained. I don't know. I don't know. All of a sudden, they just start doing things that are literally the opposite of what's best for me. Mm -hmm. And even people in your life think, no, they know what they're doing. That's the myth. That's what's scary. Yeah. Because they want the best for you, presumably. So, oh, that's that's what they do. So if they're doing that, it must be, and I'm like, no, they're doing that because they're overworked, they're under-resourced, so they lock you up. And I'm in an ER for two days being ignored. And then I flip the fuck out, Vicky. And then I have a doctor assessing whether I should, if I need to stay or not. And he's assessing my reaction to being put in a really shitty situation. And I'm looking at him like, dude, you'd be flipping the fuck out too. Yeah. And I start screaming. Guess what happens? I got to stay. Now, guess what? Every day I'm there, I'm getting billed. Is that good for my mental health? Mm, None of it is. It is the most bizarre. Is that place good or helpful for some people? Probably yes. There's a percentage of people that benefit from being in that kind of space, stabilize your drugs. But I'm telling you, it's a really, you know this, I'm sure. It is a really not a good place for many people. This is now the Sean show. Um, (laughs) Well, I just remember thinking two things. I I, I remember saying that I need to walk in the woods with a friend, which sounded like, oh, that's cute. And it's like, no, actually, that's, that's what I needed. The other thing I remember saying is I come out, I stay there for a week and I, rem- I don't miss, might've been talking to my sister. I don't recall. I said, you know, I'm coming back to my little home where I live, where I'm talking to you from right now. And I'm alone. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. I don't care the meds you put me on. Could it get better? Oh, yeah. I, I am not putting holes in my walls. Right. So you, we sort of, I'm not on Adderall and different therapists. There are things that can help, but I remember, and I think back then it sounded again, like desperate Sean saying weird things. And it's been a few years and I think I was right. I'm not trying to prove anybody to anybody that I was right. I'm alone. I'm trying. I'm obviously in good enough health to like do this podcast. So that's, you know, that's a sign that something's working in my brain. I think I was right, Vicky. 
You were right. I was right. Whatever you said made me think, yeah. What did you say exactly? Whatever it was about, oh, about remember. people being in the hospital and how we treat them and your brother-in-law oh. not being trained. And then you go to an ER and you're in the wrong oh, kind yeah. of facility and it's chaotic. And it, yeah. You know, to stick up for my people in the medical field, they don't know what to do. And, and they're in a very fast paced environment. And that is not what someone who's suicidal needs. Right. So I think it's good that you can go there instead of killing yourself, but you sure. need to be put in a proper environment where healing can take place. Right. Mental right. and spiritual healing is not going to take place in a chaotic life and death situation where you can hear it because there's only a curtain. One of the people that was in my room when I finally got out of the ER into the actual like psych unit, and you might appreciate this in some ways, he was coming off of heroin is not the right combination. And, 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 and he was actually hallucinating. So I'm trying to sleep worried that the, I don't know. And perhaps I'm naive about it, but I'm thought this guy's hallucinating. Like he could do something and he could, he could have. Yeah. I'm like, this is not healthy. This is not good for my mental health at all. Not at all. And you know, it's interesting because you can start second guessing yourself like, all right, I'm not doing well. So maybe people are right. And I thought, no, you're all fucking wrong. And I still feel that way. You, I'm sure you've had more conversations in your work than I have, but I have now had over a hundred conversations, many of which I'm talking far less than I did with you today, by the way. And I still feel that way. I feel just as strongly today as I did back then that a lot of things they did, but I 100% agree with you and want to acknowledge most of the people doing the work are well-intentioned, I'm sure and are good at what they do. And they're just, it's too many people coming in and not enough people know. And it's just an impossible situation for them. And they're trying. I mean, honestly, you can have um, just listening with our health system. I can tell you there's 14, 15 people being held for, you know, psyche valves, you know, mental health in an ER to the point where they have no room for other patients. So I think that's where the frustration on the medical side is. And it's not the patient's fault. Um, we just have such poor mental health care. It's astounding. And people have known this for a long time. So I, I'm not hearing or will not listen to a lot of the bullshit. It's like, we have the money. We have, we have enough money. Oh my God. Stop. Yeah. It's not profitable to them. And, you know, a lot of people who suffer from mental health issues can't work and don't have insurance. You know, it's very hard to evaluate the effectiveness of mental health treatment. Medical treatment is very easy to say, what? this surgery will fix you. So the insurance says, okay, I'll pay for that. Um, mental health there's an art to it. You know, not all therapists are created equal. So one treatment, one therapist cures you, another one has, you know, 20 other ones have no idea what to do. Yeah. There's so much to it, but, but to feel like I'm not doing a disservice to anyone who listens. Yes. If you are really seriously contemplating ending your life, I think you should go to the hospital. Absolutely. Most people, whether they're ideating or whatever space they're in, it's not necessarily going to fix you. There's other work to do. Whether you want to hear that or not, it's true. Some hospitals I'm sure are really good. 
I've had, I've had a lot of good conversations with people that said this particular hospital or this particular therapist or this clinic was really, was great. You know, when's your podcast coming out or is it not a definite thing yet? So I wanted to get through January with football season. Cause that's my weekend activity. Also just to get over this uh, COVID surge with this Omicron because doing infection prevention, that keeps me very busy. Mm. So just wanted to get through the month of January and then really buckle down and work on it come February. That's exciting. Yeah. Thanks for meeting. Thanks for talking. Thank you. And listening. You listened as much as I listened, if not more. (laughs) You see, people need people to talk to. You never know where you're going to find them. They do. Yeah. All right. Again, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you you connecting with me and then taking the time. And, um, you know, I'm wishing you good things. I feel like you you got good shit going on. I'm, I'm glad for that. Yeah. Thank you. All right. I'll connect with you soon. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Bye. Take care. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Vicki in North Carolina. Thank you, Vicki. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And check the show notes. There are several different ways you can support the podcast. You can find some information there. We do very much appreciate it. And that is all for episode number 101. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.